will be our focus this evening, Judges 6 through 8. You may have noticed that our brother Kyle is not with us. Um, he's been suspended one roundtable for targeting <laughs> after video review determined he should not have shown his wife and the garage mishap from several weeks ago. Uh, so he won't cramp our style tonight. Um, Good. Somebody got it. Somebody uh, got the cramps. So, sorry. Um, no, we hope you've enjoyed this series so far as we've been ranking the judges based on how applicable their stories are to our lives. What we can take away, number seven, gentlemen, Ehud, if I remember mm -hmm, correctly. Mm -hmm. It was a fierce, fierce debate whether they should make the cut or not. Lasted 60 seconds or so, but Ehud was at number seven. Abimelech at number six. At number five last week, uh, got lots of response on Twitter. Fans were upset. Uh, Jephthah <laughs> at number five. And this week, as we now approach and get into our top four, if you've already opened your Bibles, well done. You should be able to look, and we're in Judges 6 through 8. This judge is Gideon who is number four on our list. Now, as you may see, uh, unlike the story of Ehud, this is a much longer account, three chapters in length, and so I'm going to up front ask for your grace. There may be some nook or cranny that you desire for us to cover uh, and spend 30 minutes talking about. I'm sorry we can't get to it all. Uh, we've tried to focus on the things that make Gideon's uh, story great and very applicable. Now, I think it's only fair of you to ask, Craig, why have you all ranked Gideon and his team so highly in your latest rankings? Well, let me tell you a bit of his story, and perhaps you'll understand why. For 40 years, the University of Israel had experienced great success, a dynasty never to be equaled, some might say. And the reason might be because of its metaphorical head coach and athletic director, the Lord God. But Somewhere along the way, the Hebrew college and its fans got a little too used to winning. In hush-hush behind-the-scenes meetings that would make even Auburn fans a little jealous, they fired their Lord God as their coach, allowing him the courtesy, though, to hang around the program as AD. Coachless and directionless, the Israelites would go on to lose to the Midianite Matterhorns for seven straight years. Well, we know exactly how that feels, one Georgia Tech alum cries out. <laughs> however, however, still faithful to the university that betrayed him, the Lord chooses Gideon to be the team's next head coach. Or you can call him a judge if you wish. Gideon's only coaching experience is working with long snappers at Manasseh Junior College. But the Lord saw something special in him and made the hire. In his first act as the team's on-the-field leader, Gideon goes to Israel's version of Tumor's Corner, tears down the Nick Saban-esque statues that had been planted there by the other team's despicable fans, and restores the monument which honored the unmatched coaching legacy of the Lord God. Well, then comes the time to play the game, and as preparations begin for the season, the Lord God takes away thousands of Israel's scholarships, 
We don't need them, he says. And so a team that started out with more than 30,000 players gets whittled down to just 300. Armed with trumpets, trumpets in one of their hands, Gideon and his men start the big game by playing the team's fight song. In unison, they then light up torches in a sight only surpassed by the beginning of the fourth quarter at a night game in Sanford Stadium, if you know what I mean. And they then shout the team's rally cry, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Scared to death, the opposing team, in spite of having more players and more talent, they forfeit the game like a bunch of quitters, and Israel, by the power of the Lord and the leadership of Gideon, reclaims its title as the best team in the land. Now, admittedly, some of the University of Israel, they did not appreciate the team's success. The fraternity houses of Sakoth Phi Lambda and Penuel Pi refused to help with the pregame meal. Very disrespectful. And while Gideon and his team may have had to teach them a lesson, a few thorns here, a few briars there, some guys get killed, you get the picture. And so we as the contributors to this prestigious ranking system did not want to make the same mistake. So for that reason, we have respected Gideon and his team. We've ranked them fourth on the judges' impact rankings just inside the judges' playoffs if they were to begin today. All right. Good job, man. Question. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Question number one of 73, gentlemen. No, seriously, not, not, not really. Okay, so, guys, chapter 6. We have the call of Gideon by the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 12, the first words are, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And then we go down to verse 16 of chapter 6. The Lord said to him, I will be with you. So twice we have this message to Gideon, I'll be with you. I'm going to just throw it out to you. I'm just going to put it out there, lay it out there on the line. I will be with you is the greatest promise in all of the Bible. Do you agree or disagree? We're getting this round table started in the right. What do you think? Yes or no? So there's not a wrong answer here. I don't think any one of us uh, would be foolish enough to say, you know what, I will be with you is not a great promise. Uh, we can pass on the I will be with you nonsense. None of us would say that. Uh, I will be with you is one of the greatest uh, promises in all of Scripture. Uh, in fact, any promise from God is beyond what our finite minds can understand, I believe. The fact that an all-powerful uh, God, an all-knowing God would promise things to me. That's something my mind uh, has a hard time comprehending. But... You know, the assurance that God is with us is pretty much at the top of the list. It's very close to the top, if not at the absolute top, as good as it gets when it comes to God's promises. And the one I'm going to mention, I don't know if it is greater by any means than the promise, I will be with you, but I do believe it belongs in the same discussion. Uh, it's at least worthy of discussion. And uh, maybe you could debate me on this, but... When I hear, I will be with you, when I hear the promise, I will be with you from God, I see this promise as something that helps me in this mortal life, right? This helps me as I go through my everyday life to know that God is with me 
that no matter where I am, God loves me enough to be by my side in the valleys of life, in the mountaintops of life. This is a promise that helps me in this mortal life. It helps me today. It helps me right now. This is a blessing that I find with my physical life now. The promise I want to talk about is something that helps me tomorrow. Something that helps me uh, with my spiritual soul. Uh, the promise that I want to talk about is a blessing for eternity. And that's what we find in one of the most well-known passages in all of Scripture. In John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I will be with you is one of the greatest promises in all of Scripture and by no means is beaten by this other promise I've mentioned. But the promise that if I believe in Jesus Christ, that promise that I will have eternal life to me is just as great or even greater perhaps than the promise I will be with you. But, again, I, I lean on the promise I will be with you every single day. They can split the national championship maybe, those yeah. two. I, th I think in this regard, when I was trying to, I was trying to think of it, I'll be honest, I came into this going, what is a promise I can find that's better, right? Yeah. I wanted to find something to disagree with. I wanted to find something I could say, well, I think it's this one. But every promise I looked at and I examined, I thought, well, that just is another component of I will be with you. And so I believe I will be with you possibly is the best promise in the Bible because it encompasses, it's the umbrella term, it's the umbrella promise for that every single thing that God promises. And you can see that even in John 3, 16, when it says, you know, for God's love, for God so loved the world that He gave what? His only begotten Son, right? So that's that answering of I will be with you. And us believing in Him is us answering that call back to God. And so I had a hard time finding a promise that's better than that because that might be the best way to encompass everything that we have today and everything that we're looking forward to tomorrow. And I think a way we can see that is by looking at the converse statement, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 35, or verse 5, excuse me. Never will I leave you, nor will I forsake you. And I think I can just look out in the audience. If, we've, if you've ever lost someone, if you've ever lost a loved one, that promise of I'm never going to leave you, that's a comfort you only get with God. And so I think the more we look into this promise, okay, how does God never leaving me, how does God saying he will be with me, how does it affect my relationship with this person? How does it, how does it reflect my finances? How does that reflect my spiritual habits at home? How, if you, it, the more you attach that promise to every aspect of your life, the more you'll see different aspects of it itself. So I think it's an incredible promise, maybe the best one ever uttered. Just uh, so we hear this, under, I want to, some folks who may not know, repeated throughout the Bible, to Moses, to Joshua, to Gideon, to Isaac, from David to Solomon, to Jehoshaphat, to Jeremiah, to Paul, is probably the oft-forgotten part of the Great Commission, too. You know, I will be with you always even until the end of the age. That's at the end, we often miss that. that. That's the reason why the Great Commission, they can do it. They can be bold and not be afraid. And then I would add, uh, when it comes to eternity to come and the future glory, my favorite text is 1 Thessalonians 4 because um, it's so clear cut to me. And there's no statement by Paul about streets of gold there, um, beautiful gardens, uh, you know, an eternal worship service. All he says is that, you know, we will always be with the Lord. That's what, that's what it is to Paul. We'll all, you know, and so that's, again, that idea of that's, that's good enough. That's what I need. I will be with you is a great promise, and it was meant to reassure Gideon. Uh, guys, you know, we briefly covered through the story of Gideon. 
why does it inspire you guys? What, what, this is a good time to maybe bring out specific pieces or parts that really encourage, inspire, challenge, thoughts that y'all have. It inspires me because of where Gideon is when God comes to him. And to me, that's the best part of the story. Gideon is hiding in a wine press, right? And so we see in the first part of chapter 6 when God comes to him that Gideon is hiding out in a wine press and um, beating out wheat, right? And then when he starts talk, talking to the angel of the Lord, one of his first reasons of why he's not good enough doing it is says, I'm the lowest member of my family, which is the lowest family in this tribe, right? And that's what, it's inspi- that's what inspires me about Gideon is because he is n- no one would look to this man to ever get anything done. No one would look to him and say he's, a, he's able to accomplish anything. And that calls me out of my pit sometimes that I put myself into, right? We're all guilty of looking at ourselves in the mirror saying, you're not good enough to get that done. You're not good enough to meet that promise. You're not good enough to make an impact here. How many times have you stopped from doing something for God because you just think, well, I could never do that, right? I could never answer that need. I could never, I could never step up and, and speak here or write a note there. Or I don't have enough time, right? We all create our own pits that we, we hide out in working, right? We all create our own pits that maybe it's our jobs. Okay, well, I... I'm going to hide over here and seem really, really busy, right? I'm going to hide over here because it's more comfortable here. And then not only that, when he's hiding in that pit, he's also just flat out doubting God. He's flat out saying, because as soon as the angel starts talking to him, he says, well, if God really wants to do something, then why does he let A, B, and C happen, right? So not only is he hiding in the pit, but he's doubting God, and yet God still sees this man worthy. And that's just another drop in the bucket of how God operates. This is every single week we look at, is this guy worthy to help God? Not at all, right? But that's, that's, the, that's the men and women that God constantly goes to to use. We think about where Moses was when God called him out. He's a humble, humble shepherd, shepherd, right? We think about where David was when God calls him out. He's the, he's the son that the, the father didn't have any trust in. So you have those two just being lowly shepherds. You think about Elisha. We were talking about Elijah in the uh, Young Professionals class today. Casey's doing an excellent job on that. Elisha is working in a, in, in a, he's plowing the garden. And God says, you are about to be the next Elijah, right? You're about to be the next man of God in this country. And so this is just another man in the lineage of failures or nobodies or just, you know, average Joes that God says, Okay, you're the one I want to work with. And that inspires me. Because also, and then I'll, I'll, I'll cede my time. I'll give it over to you. Like, so you're saying like the anti-Samson in a way. Absolutely. Who may yeah, show yeah. up later. We'll see. I mean, who knows? Let's see if he's worthy well, or not, we'll right? See. Yes. right. <laughs> I think it's easy to find people that say, you're not good enough for this. Because sometimes we make our own pits. And other times other people throw us in a pit. And they say, well, you've made that decision. Um, oh, you don't wear the right thing. Uh, you don't sound the right way. Oh, you don't look the right part. And because of that, you're not good enough now. There's been a change in your life. There's been a setback in your life. And you, should, you, you deserve to be over here, right? We've we got to move on. We've got to do stuff, okay? And so it's, if, it, if it's not yourself putting yourself in a pit, it's other people putting you in a pit saying, mm, not worthy. And thankfully, yet again, through all of this time, God says, well, I still see you good enough. I'll still keep working with you. So I think that's how Gideon inspires me. That's powerful. I think when we think about why the story of Gideon inspires me, and it's going to inspire you perhaps differently. It inspires Jay and Craig differently. For me, I look at the story of Gideon and I see that this is a guy that did not allow his fear to defeat his trust. 
He did not allow his fear to keep him from trusting in God. Because when you look at Gideon and the man that we find in this narrative tonight, he had fears. Gideon was weak. He was a weak man, and I can find myself in him. I can find those same weaknesses that I have in Gideon. I can see Gideon and find myself. That's what's inspiring to me about the story of Gideon Gideon is he has doubts, just like I do. When I look at the story of Gideon, he had fears that he wasn't enough, that he wasn't strong enough, or that he wasn't a good enough leader, or that he wasn't the guy that that should be called upon. He had fears that he wasn't enough, and just like him so many times, I feel like I'm not enough especially when I think about the the things I'm going against, the things I'm facing, or or the challenges that come my way. I I think I'm not enough, and I think Gideon feels the same way. He doesn't feel like he's enough to face this great enemy before him. And so he doubts himself, and I doubt myself all the time. Um, It could have been very easy for Gideon to say, I don't care how many times you wet that fleece or dry that fleece, I'm not going. But he didn't allow his fears to let him do that. He didn't allow his his doubts and his fears to conquer over his trust in God. Instead, he allowed his trust in God to vanquish his fears. And that's why we find in Hebrews chapter 11. Last week, we spent a good portion of our time discussing whether or not Jephthah should be in Hebrews 11 or, or why he's in Hebrews 11, what, what justifies that. Well, we could have the same discussion tonight on Gideon. He's in the very same verse in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. It says Gideon. Gideon is found in the Hall of Fame of Faith. And it's because, I believe, he did not allow his fear to keep him from trusting God. I think that's something we all need to think about tonight. How... How do we let our fear make our decisions? Do we allow fear to dictate our choices? Sometimes we we allow fear to take the wheel. We are fearful about this, so we're not even going to get close to this challenge or stepping out of my comfort zone or whatever it might be. Sometimes we make decisions based off of fear. This isn't, you know, a a stranger to the Lord's church. I think the Lord's church makes decisions out of fear. Not trusting in God to supply. Not trusting in God to, 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 to make things happen in our life. Not trusting in God's providence and His, His, His ability to do everything beyond what we ask or think. So to me, when I look at the story of Gideon, it inspires me most because Gideon was a fearful man just like me, full of fear, full of doubts, full of inadequacy. But he did not let that fear trump his trust in God. But it's not just you know, Gideon that inspires me about this story. God's role in this narrative inspires me about this story, but we'll get to that in a minute. As you were talking, just I, one of the things you mentioned was about the, the double fleece test. And, like, it's easy for me to sit back and be critical of Gideon. Like, come on, dude. You really got to test God twice before you obey? 
And I'm thinking to myself, well, Craig, I wonder how many times through God's providence he's given you not just two signs, but 200 signs. <laughs> and you're still saying, I need another. Uh, and yet, of course, I'm critical of Gideon. Just some things that the story of Gideon inspires me, just, to, just four quick things. Because it teaches me that God can see a mighty man of valor where we only see the weakest or the least. Because it contains a story of a father standing up for his son and standing up for God. And that's something we're not able to dive into right now, but that, that inspired me a lot. And that starts in chapter 6, verse 28. I'd love to see how Gideon's dad stands up for him. Because it reminds me that sometimes God delights in doing more with less so that he gets the glory. And because, as you were kind of hinting at, it teaches me that our God is patient as his children slowly build their faith. And so that gets to kind of this next question I want to talk about with you guys. Any other thoughts on inspiration of Gideon's story? Uh, so look at the end of chapter 6. So starting in verse 36, we have what we've referred to as kind of this double fleece test that Gideon's like, all right, I'll, I'll go into battle against the Midianites, but he asks for dew to be found only on the fleece and then for dew to be found uh, everywhere around the fleece in a double test to test God and his power. Um, and why do you think, guys, that God goes along with Gideon's request for one, but not, not just one, but two signs? Uh, I think we all know that we have people in our lives that are like, I will obey God, but first he needs to do this. Or if God would only heal such and such, I would give him my all for the rest of my life. Um, those kinds of sign ultimatums. Uh, is, is, you know, what would we say to somebody who's kind of in that boat? Uh, and then you have kind of, as you look at chapter 7 and verse 9 through 14, you have God that kind of, he kind of leads Gideon by the hand and, and shows him another sign. Uh, if he was afraid. Kind of shows him someone who has a dream that basically Midian got whooped <laughs> and instilled confidence in Gideon. Uh, and so, I don't know, guys, just to summarize, you know, why does God go along for multiple requests for signs? What would you offer to somebody who's like, you know, I'll follow God if, you know, where do, where do you take that? I sympathize for Gideon because of what he's being asked for. He is, I mean, the Midianites are not some, you know, it, it's fun. Like, they're, they're, they're the Crosstown Rival football team, right? right? Also, they're like, you know, coming in and killing Israelites every so often and taking everybody, uh, host, taking people hostage, stealing all their goods. This is also a terrible enemy foe, right? And so imagine if, you know, your neighborhood is just ransacked every single Tuesday for months and for years, right? And then all of a sudden you're just called out upon saying, hey, we're going to, you have to lead the charge now. We'd like for you to lead, uh, put your neck out in the line, and uh, we'd like for you to go to battle for the rest of the nation, right? So I don't think we need to minimize how much he's being asked of, right? So I understand that it's silly. It is silly. We look at this and go, obviously, we, he should know that God is with him and the things going on. However, we have to also recognize the, maybe the validity of the fear there as well. Another thing I, I think maybe I'd, I'd say to this is, when it comes to, you know, it's tempting for people today to ask, you know, if well, God would just do this for me, if God would just, you know. Um, I just don't think that's how it works these days, right? Um, God walked with Adam and Eve, and then that stopped. God met men and women's needs in, in this particular way, in a miraculous way, for a long time, right? But now we have something that should give us evidence of the power and almightiness 
of God in our hands every day, right? We don't need a miraculous sign every morning I wake up that God is real and that he's with me because I have this miraculous sign in a bound form saying, this is God's word. And so I think this is, this is my sign. This is my fleece right here. I wake, every, I wake up every morning and see that this is different than the world around it, right? The things that's in here are, are found nowhere else. And this is the fleece that wakes me up and go, okay, yep, God is with me, right? And so it's tempting. And I know I've said those prayers before. God, if you'll just show me a sign, I'll know you're... So it's tempting, right? But what type of belief does that create? Jesus didn't like the people that asked those questions, even in his day and age. People would say, well, show us a sign, Jesus. And he goes, oh, no, no, that's not how this works, right? His teachings alone should have been good enough. So Jesus has been working against that, that mindset for a while. And so I think I, we... We should be careful when we're quick to say, God, give me a sign, right? Because he's given it to us. We've already woken up. That fleece thing's already been handled. And we've got it, and we can read all about it right here. And I think that's... So God is patient in the wisdom of God there. I think he doesn't look over the weakness of... He calls him a valiant warrior, but he's patient with his weakness. So I think maybe Ben will speak more to that, too. Yeah, I, the question uh, earlier about why is this so inspiring, I, I think we, we see in, in, inspiration through... Gideon's story and what we see in Gideon, but also it's inspiring to me to know that I serve the God of Gideon, the God who is patient, the God who is compassionate, the God who is kind, the God who is gracious, the God who is loving, uh, the God who is ultimately a father. And in a lot of ways, I see Gideon as this scared son who doesn't know how this is going to turn out, and he goes to the Father for comfort. Not one time in that chapter, when Gideon is asking God to do the fleece, not one time does God say, I don't have time for that. Not one time does God say, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not willing to do that. You should know who I am. I don't have to do this. I see God as this perfect Father who understands that His child is, is scared. And as his father, he's going to do everything he can to comfort him. He's going to do everything he can to show him it's okay, um, that everything's going to be okay. And that's ultimately what God wants for Gideon, is that everything will be okay for him and his people. But when we think about this question, why does God put up with it, I think we have a very challenging theological conflict here. I think this is why it's such a good question, because obviously we just said God doesn't show any signs of uh, being... Uh, miffed about this or, or being upset about this or any way but yet we know that God is not someone who wants to be tested well how do we know that Jesus said in his response to the devil in Luke chapter 4 you shall not put the Lord God to the test a quote from Deuteronomy so here we have Jesus saying you shall not put the Lord your God to the test and here's Gideon putting God to the test and the Lord not being upset about it and then conversely, you have, you know, this example of Gideon, but you also have Malachi chapter 3, where God himself says, try me now, put me to the test when it comes to giving, if I will not outgive you, right? So you have this theological conflict, which one is it? So I think that's why it becomes such a good question. But to the person that is, is wanting a sign from God to do this or that, I'm with Jay on this, and I, I think the scriptures are very clear on this that you better understand if, you're, if what you're asking for is God's will or not. 
Because the fact of the matter is, the bottom line is, God is only ever going to accomplish what His will is. No matter how many times you, you, you want it a different way, God's going to accomplish His will the way He wants to accomplish it. And so my question would be to the person wanting a sign or, or wanting, wanting some kind of signal from God on something, is, is your will aligned with God's will? Because if it's not, then you're setting yourself up for disappointment. If you align yourself to what God's will is, then the signs will be evident because that's what God's will is. But if you try to live your life based on making things happen your way and your way only, then you're only ever going to be disappointed every single time. And if you go about your life thinking that God is supposed to be giving you signs, then you ultimately might wind up losing your faith in God. Because you act as if God should be at your beck and call, God should bend His will to your will, God should be doing things on your timing, things like that. And when you do that, ultimately there's going to be an opportunity for you to say, well... If God isn't doing this, then there is no God. And that's, of course, not what we want. That's not what God wants for us. What God wants for us is for us to align our will with His, and then we don't have to worry about tomorrow. We don't have to worry, and we don't have to have fear. All we have to have is trust. Uh, trust. So that's what's amazing and inspiring to me about God, and this is, is the fact that I serve the same God that is patient, that is comforting, that is loving, and he simply just wants me to have the same will he has. Thank you guys for your perspective on that. Uh, like if we reframe the question, God, if you will show that you love me, mm-hmm. then I'll follow you forever. And Romans 5.8 mm-hmm. clearly says that God shows, present tense, present tense, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, you know, who are asking for the most elaborate sign to, for him to show that he loves us and wants the best for us, and he's like, I already done that, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> to me. Uh, and that relates, you know, we, we could add to it the word, like mm-hmm. you mentioned. Um, you know, just one, just one other thing real quick I'd like to mention on that. So real quick, in Exodus chapter 3, I want to bring this up just because uh, Moses is a guy who doubts like Gideon, who's afraid like Gideon, and gets the same I will be with you promise that he gave to Gideon, but uh, it's interesting what, what Moses is told in, in Exodus 3.12. God says, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you. I'm like, oh boy, what's he about to do now? Uh, this is going to be something pretty cool. And he says this, this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. <laughs> in other words, the sign that I'm with you will be after you've obeyed and after you've done everything I've said to do, you'll be able to look back and say, wow, you really was with me. (laughs) And that's, I've got to be honest with you, I feel like it's that back end, that, you know, hindsight that for me that that happens a lot more than the other. Uh, All right, shifting gears, guys, because I want to do that and I'm the, the moderator and I get to cause trouble. Last time at the beginning of Judges 12, at the beginning of Judges 12, we, we heard about these men of Ephraim that got something in a wad that they didn't need to because they were upset they weren't called into the fight. 
And now we come to this week's, which is, of course, back in time, but interesting, and go to Judges 8 at the top of Judges 8. So that was what? The beginning of Judges 12, and now the beginning of Judges 8. Here come the men of Ephraim, and they're upset again because Gideon didn't call them when he went to fight against Midian. So, second time, men of Ephraim, upset, not getting being called to fight. So, guys, I'm going to ask this question. I'm going to go stand in the corner way far away from you guys. Who are the men of Ephraim in today's congregations? And what would you say to them in order to bring peace as Gideon does? Because Gideon basically, if you look at Judges 8, verses 2 through 3, has a discussion with them and is able to, to calm them down a little bit. These folks who are like, why didn't you call me in? Uh, what do y'all think about that? Nose goes. Yeah. No, uh, you know, this is, a, this is a dangerous question, Craig. Um, I can remember in the hiring process, we were telling Craig about the round table, and uh, Craig instantly said, I cannot wait to cause some trouble on the round table. So here <laughs> he is tonight. You did it, brother. Here he is tonight. Stirring the, stir the pot. Causing some trouble. Um, but seriously, I, I love the question. Um, I think there is a correlation that we can make, and it's a powerful one. And I want everyone to just, uh, including myself, to humble yourself as we talk about this and just ask yourself, have you ever found yourself being a man or a woman of Ephraim? Okay? Because here, it, again, as Craig pointed out, there, there, there are two, multiple examples of the men of Ephraim after a great success a roaring success that it was absolutely, positively a great thing for the nation of Israel. Here they come. All they've got is negativity. And all they've got is complaints. And all they have is, woe, pitiful me. Here again we see it in the story of Gideon. Here you have the greatest, I would say, the greatest underdog story in all of human history. 300 men defeating 135,000 Midianites. 300 defeating 135,000 Midianites. This is, this is an un, uh, unimpeachable victory for Israel. And what do the men of Ephraim have to do and have to say? Well, you didn't think about me. You didn't think about what I wanted or how I would have done it or, or, or how much I could have added to it. Have you ever found yourself having that same attitude? Ad admittedly, I have. I, sometimes I see successes and I see some victories and I, I, I wish that I had played some part in it. And so instead of rejoicing, all I can find myself doing is, is being a man of Ephraim complaining. So, the men of Ephraim, inevitably, even though they had this great victory, inevitably they had something negative to say. And when it comes to the Lord's church, I think there are those. There are those in the Lord's church, there are those in this congregation who cannot seem to rejoice when it's time to rejoice who cannot rejoice with those who rejoice. They simply want to weep amongst those who are rejoicing. 
It could be an example of, of someone gives the greatest sermon ever preached from this pulpit. But because it was two minutes too long, it was the worst sermon I've ever heard in my life. It could be an example of we have this amazing outreach to the community where we are able to, to help those who are in need. But because you went to that school and not any other schools, I don't want any part of it. It could be time and time again when we have successes over and over again where instead of, of, of rejoicing in the good work that God is doing, all we want to do is wallow in the negativity that we find in the deepest parts of our heart. Unfortunately, this negativity creeps its way into the Lord's church all the time. And unfortunately, when it comes to these kind of people, just like the men of Ephraim, it's the same people over and over again. And we know it as ministers, we know it as, as, as leaders in the church, the same people over and over again find themselves doing the same cycle of complaining and grumbling instead of rejoicing when it's time to rejoice. So Gideon doesn't take... The, the one thing, how do you deal with these people, yeah. right? The one thing I've learned is you cannot defeat fire with fire. Although I have quite the fire. <laughs> How'd you learn that, Ben? I, I have learned you cannot... Put out fire with more fire. I've learned the only way you can put out fire is to pour water on it. And what Gideon does here in the text is he pours coals, coals of fire on, the, on their head. Instead of, of, of matching fire with fire, instead of going right back at them and telling them how miserable of people they are, how ungrateful they are, instead of doing any of that, he gives a soft answer. And that soft answer turns away their wrath. Instead of giving them what they want, which is an argument, which is a fight, which is a back and forth, he gives a soft answer. And that's something I'm still learning how to do. But he learns that he can only control what he can control. And what he can control is how he responds to these men of Ephraim. And the thing about it is, Gideon gives the men of Ephraim, and we need to give the people in our life that are like the men of Ephraim. We need to give them the grace that we want people to give us because they may have stuck their foot in their mouth, but I do it all the time. So there's my answer. I, well, I appreciate how you... Uh, how you I mean, we, we're, we, all, we all fall into the trap. I think that's, that's what I hear you saying. We're all like the older son and the story about the prodigal son uh and so i appreciate you, you sharing that jay do you want to jump in yeah i, I wrote some some names down my name's at the top <laughs> yeah uh jay hall ben hogan correct now uh okay yeah this is that's a great yeah both of those are great points um Okay, so we have to, so that's a, this is the perfect example of how to handle people like that. But we also don't see is him going back and saying, you're right, I should have called you first. He doesn't, he doesn't bound to him. He, he, he strokes the ego, and they walk away, and there's not a civil war, all right? And Jephthah 
feel like he tries to do that, and they still are angry, right? But there's, yet again, there's a reason maybe Jephthah, well, Jephthah does call, and they just don't answer the call. But we don't, what we don't need to do is just continue to caveat these people. If we have these people coming and complaining, complaining, complaining about the same things, hear them out. Obviously, I'm not saying just, you know, oh, that's just the Ephraimites. No, hear them out. But we don't need to change everything that we're doing. This is a success story. Chapter 7 is success. Not because, you know, it wasn't a failure. Oh, you're right, I forgot the Ephraimites. All of that was for, for loss now. No, 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 it was still a success. Just because someone got upset about it doesn't, doesn't take away the success. These are, these, are the, these are the Ephraimites of the church today. Anyone, two groups, anyone who cares more about recognition than they care about achievement, right? I think that's what you were speaking to a lot. If, if you find yourself ever thinking more about recognition than achievement, and I have to catch myself on that, then that's when you need to kind of you need to step out, right? You need to, you need to excuse yourself from, from the spotlight a little bit, right? The second group I, I thought of that um, are the Ephraimites in today's church Anyone who dictates how they will serve God. It says, this is how it should be done. This is how it should be done, Gideon. The last congregation I served at, they had a pretty thriving college program and a, and a small-sized youth group. And I, I walked in on my first Sunday. I was meeting everybody. It was great. And I had a, an older lady come up to me, and she goes, I am so happy you're here. I just want you to know, I only help the college group. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> Thank you for letting me know not to ask you for help. You know, it's like... I'm glad you and God have made that vow together, right? <laughs> and so it's, but you see that mindset, oh, this is how I serve God. This is how things should be done. This is where, this is how this plan should be enacted. And if we start dictating how God's will should look, then you might find yourself being an e-, e for mine. So. Or this is, or this is my territory. Like this mm. is, this is, this is my region That's of church right. service. Mm-hmm. And I expect when you come into this region to give me a call. And I've been doing uh, it for 20 years, so how dare you step right. into Evermont territory and tell me how to run this place? I think you guys did a great job answering this question. I'm not going to say anything. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Craig. It's uh, <laughs> uh, my favorite. All right, lightning round. Lightning round, real quick. Uh, chapter 8, end of Gideon's life. They like, we want to we wanna set up like this, uh, this system of, of rule where it's you and your sons and your grandsons. You've done such a great job. Gideon's like, no, the Lord your God is your king. He refuses. Thumbs up, Gideon. But then, uh, instead, Gideon basically uh, makes this ephod, chapter 8, starting in verse 24. Uh, guys, what, what's the deal with this golden ephod? We've got about five minutes left. Uh, application today. What did you find? Anything that we put on the same level of worship is going to create problems, Right? This is a good intention, I think, in, in the... Okay, well, it, it starts off saying, okay, um, no, I don't need to be a monarch. That's what they're trying to set up, yeah, right? They're right, trying to set up right. the real first king here. And he goes, no, 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 I don't want to do that, right? And so, man, great, right? He honors who should be worshipped. He goes, let's just make a monument. Let's just give me 50 pounds of gold here, and I'll make a monument to remind you all. We should go... And where, by the way, where's the temple of... Where's the uh, tabernacle? It's this? not, not Nofra. It's an Ephraim. No, it's an interesting point really? there. It's wow. an Ephraim. So it's almost like, mm, what if we had somewhat, something else we could worship not where those guys are, right? Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. But anything we put that says, ah, oh, this is just as good, right? We don't have to go to Ephraim. We don't have to go over there. Um, uh, everybody has a gold defeat in your life if you've ever put anything on the same level of worship. If you get more excited about Saturday night football than Sunday morning worship, then that's your golden ephod, right? If sports come before worship on Sunday morning or Sunday night, or you, you, you just name it, right? Whatever we elevate to worship level is a golden ephod. 
It's something we've built, right? And sometimes it's out of good things, right? Well, I'm going to spend time with my family. We're going to go on a vacation. And so we're just going to spend some extra family time together. Great idea there. Maybe we're building a golden ephod out of our family if we're putting our family on the same point as worship, right? So we just got to be careful with it. So, yeah, so they end up pouring after. That's what we Mm -hmm. have. Ben, thoughts about that? Um, When I think about the golden ephod, I I think what Jay's talking about is is anything anything that you put on the same level of of how much you care about, how much you love, how much much you worship and praise God, uh, things that that conflict with, with, with... your loyalty, on, on what what you allow your, your mind to, to meditate on, to focus on, more so than God, and we all have golden ephods. But I think what's what's interest what's most interesting about this metaphor in our lives is I think it's a whole lot easier to point out other people's golden ephods than my own golden ephods. Mm-hmm. I, I I think there's there's a tendency for us to be able to go. I can't believe you have that golden ephod in your life. And be completely blind to the golden ephod I have in my life. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's the challenge of, of this, is, is not realizing that this example of the golden ephod wasn't put in the Scriptures so that you could think about all how dirty, rotten scoundrel the people around you are. It was put in the scriptures to make us think about what makes us those dirty, rotten scoundrels that forget who we should be worshiping and why we should be worshiping or worshiping God. So I think that's the challenge to flip it on its head a little bit is just to think you're thinking of someone probably in your life that, that maybe idolizes something, maybe puts something above the way they should, but instead of, of focusing on, on them so much tonight, challenge yourself to focus on yourself and think about what you put above God and what, what, what you allow to trump your worship and trump your meditation and trump your study of God's word and, and trump your praise of God and, and your glorifying of God. What is it? Because regardless of the size of the ephod, or regardless of, of what it is, it's still an ephod. It's still something that has become something that maybe you didn't realize it had become. If, if I can add real quick before we wrap it up. No. Um, yes. I, no, right. Thank you. Sorry. I see you raising the pot, and I raise no. you right yeah, now. Yes. Um, okay. You know what I think the biggest golden ephod in the church today is? And this is honest opinion. Something that we elevate. We have the elements of worship, right? We've got those. We gotta. We gotta be here on Sunday for these elements of worship. But you know what I think? The church is guilty of putting on the same level as those elements of worship is? The tradition. Well, we've always sang these songs. We've always had that prayer then. Uh, we've always done it this way. We've always met six. We've we got to be singing, right? We know how we should be singing. The Bible dictates how that is, right? That's the worship. So let's just elevate the, how, the ways in which we do it in the order or whatever it may be. I think that can be real dangerous at times. So if it's in the blue book, it's okay. If it's in that book right there, it's okay. But bring if it's orange in the book orange out, book, cut it out. I'm going to cut you guys off here. <laughs> this is your fault. <laughs> you did this to us, Craig. You made us answer these questions. I hope I'm still here in a couple of weeks. Now, anyway, I, I, real quick, relig- religious innovation, worship convenience, spiritual compromise, 
Those are all words I found. And so I would just warn, beware loving the performance or the program instead of the Lord for whom, by whom, and through whom all of that is. And so that's the warning for us all. Uh, Good to be with you all tonight. Let's close with prayer. Our Father, We are so thankful for your grace and your patience. It has come into full view through the real-life example of Gideon. And we're so thankful of how you have saved us and how you've blessed us. We who are the least. We who are the weakest. Uh, Father, we pray that you get all glory in all things. And even if that means using us in things we may not be too fond of and we feel like we're outnumbered, we, we ask for your continued patience and praise you that you're slow to anger in those times where we feel like we need a sign, where we need a little something. Uh, we pray that, Father, you help us to put you first in all things, to be faithful unto death, that the last chapter of our lives will be victorious and strong and lead our children and grandchildren in the way of faithfulness as well. Uh, Thank you for this time together. Please clothe us all with a thankful spirit this week. In Jesus' name we pray.